0: Um, I need to cancel our Bible study for next week, so um, yeah, well, sorry about that. Um, Yeah, so our next one will actually be December 2. Uh, This is not a bad time, this is kind of a natural break here with Solomon because we move on to a totally uh, different phase with the splitting of the kingdoms. All right, so we've uh, spent three weeks on Solomon, Proverbs, Song of Songs or Song of Solomon and now Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. I just wonder how many of you have read Ecclesiastes recently. Um, well, good. Some people have. I guess what we're going to struggle with a little bit here, and, and this comes up so many times, is just the general subject of inspiration. Some of these verses here, we'll just kind of, as we read them, we're going to read large portions of the book and just consider um, how is this inspired? How do we apply this to our daily lives? First, just, just read a little bit about what happened to Solomon. And I think we talked about this when we went through Deuteronomy. I just find this fascinating. Remember, um, God warned the people, please, don't have a king. It's a terrible idea. But yet, um, you know, he saw this coming. And when Moses wrote uh, Deuteronomy, these words apply so much to Solomon. After you've taken possession of the land that the Lord your God is going to give you and have settled there, then you will decide you need a king, like all the nations around you, which is, of course, exactly what happened. Now here, the king is not to have a large number of horses for his army. And he is not to send people to Egypt to buy horses. Because his Lord has said that his people are never to return there. And of course, uh, what do we read about Solomon? He had 40,000 stalls for his chariot horses. Do you think we would consider that a lot of horses? would seem like it. And of course, he got exports from Egypt. His horses were imported from Egypt. And so um, I just think it's interesting here. We have this very um, specific command. When you have a king, he's not to have a lot of horses. Please don't build a huge army. And uh, don't export them from Egypt. Because, of course, interacting with um, foreign nations, they were always tempted to worship other gods. And so we see Solomon doing exactly these things. Even early on, when it seemed like um, many of the things he said and did uh, were good, Okay, so just the rest of the passage in Deuteronomy. The king is not to have many wives. I don't need to quote a supporting verse for that, of course, because this would make him turn away from the Lord. That's exactly what turned Solomon away from the Lord. He's not to make himself rich with silver and gold. Did Solomon make himself rich with silver and gold? Certainly did. And when he becomes king, he's to have a copy of the book of God's laws and teachings Made from the original copy kept by the Levitical priests, he's to keep this book near to him and read it, read from it all his life. And of course, if he's reading the book, what is he going to read? He's going to read that command: don't have lots of horses, don't get them from Egypt, don't have lots of wives. And um, so the it was, you know, attempt to build in this mechanism here to prevent uh, this horrible collapse so that he would learn to honor the Lord, obey faithfully everything that is commanded in it. This will keep him from thinking that he is better than other Israelites and from disobeying the Lord's commands in any way, and then he'll reign for a long time. All right. So it was kind of going against some of these things in Deuteronomy, perhaps not reading, not understanding all of this uh, that was uh, led to his downfall. Okay, so just a little bit here on the story story of Solomon before we get into Ecclesiastes. I think we read last time here in 1 Kings 6 that in the eighth month, in the eleventh year of Solomon's reign, the temple was completely finished exactly as it had been planned, and it had taken Solomon seven years to build it. Now the next verse, it goes from 1 Kings 6.38 to 1 Kings 7.1, and the very next verse is this, Solomon also built a palace for himself, and it took him 13 years. just seemed to me that the uh, emphasis here, will spend seven years on God's temple, then he spent 13 years on his own. Uh, maybe a red flag. And of course, Solomon loved many foreign women. Besides the daughter of the king of Egypt, he married Hittite women, and women from Moab, Ammon, Edom, and Sidon. He married them, even though the Lord had commanded the Israelites not to intermarry with these people, because they would cause the Israelites to give their loyalty to other gods. Solomon married 700 princesses. And also had 300 concubines. And they made him turn away from God. Makes it sound like it's uh, their fault here, but of course, his, his choice to, to live this way. And by the time he was old, they had led him into the worship of foreign gods. And the, these foreign gods, we've mentioned a little bit on some of these foreign gods, but just to specify, we don't really imagine how horrible these foreign gods were. It's hard to grasp. But Solomon was not faithful to the Lord his God, as David had been. He worshipped. Now, some of these, um, Astarte here is the goddess of fertility, sexuality, and war. Okay, The goddess of Sidon. And Moloch, we've talked about. Moloch was the cruel god where they would heat up the fiery hands and put the baby uh, inside. Okay. He, he worshipped Moloch. I mean, what a turnaround here. The wisest man that had ever lived, wrote all these proverbs, did all these wonderful things, and now he's worshiping Moloch, about the most uh, debased form of religion we can imagine. And Moloch was the disgusting god of Ammon. And on the mountain east of Jerusalem, he built a place to worship Chemosh and a a, a god known for uh, demanding human sacrifice. Okay, the disgusting god of Moab and a place to worship Moloch, the disgusting god of Ammon. And so we just see this uh, dramatic about-face. Okay, he was humble at the beginning. He was wise. He did wonderful things. And then uh, a complete turnaround. And I think we need to read Ecclesiastes in that light. So we talked about these warning signs here. But even with regards to women, I didn't bring up this verse here in Song of Songs. This is a colorful translation. King Solomon made himself a chariot from the wood of Lebanon. Its posts are silver, its canopy is gold, the seat is purple, and the back is inlaid with these words, with love, from the girls of Jerusalem. (laughs) This is the Living Bible. Um, which is uh, maybe not exactly how it should be uh, translated but uh, i was reading this with my kids and i just thought it was funny so um, you know some warning signs here even in the song of solomon and in proverbs we read last time a nagging wife is like water going drip 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 and that if you had a thousand of them you might tend to feel that way And I just thought it was funny that he kept repeating it in Proverbs. probably some of these got in at other times, but a nagging wife is like water going drip, drip, drip on a rainy day. How can you keep her quiet? Have you ever tried to stop the wind or ever tried to hold a handful of oil? Well, we have to be careful not to pluck that out and make a doctrine um, out of it because uh, this reflects Solomon's uh, foolish experience and uh, foolish choices uh, here with women. And in Nehemiah, that nicely here kind of summarizes what happened to Solomon. Okay, it was foreign women that made King Solomon sin. Here was a man who was greater than any of the other kings of other nations. God loved him and made him king over all of Israel, and yet he fell into this sin. Okay, so he was led into the worship of other gods. And just one last point here. After the break, we'll talk about the kingdom splitting and Solomon's son Rehoboam here as he is about ready to uh, make decisions as king. And the people said, please don't be like Solomon. He placed heavy burdens on us. He taxed them to build his palace and uh, all of his chariots and other things. And so he was an oppressive king in the end of his life. <clears throat> so now we come to the Ecclesiastes. And I think uh, most everyone agrees that Proverbs, Song of Solomon written early, during his kingship, and Ecclesiastes written at the very end. Um, Solomon turned back to God after doing all of these things, after worshiping other gods. And I think uh, the book of Ecclesiastes fits here during this time. And the question is, what are we to learn from Ecclesiastes? So here's our challenging uh, verse here with regards to this book. All scripture is inspired, literally God-breathed. And it's useful to teach what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. So I want to have this in mind here as we read Ecclesiastes. Um, are all of these words God-breathed? <clears throat> so here's how it opens. These are the words of the philosopher. Ecclesiastes means the teacher or the preacher. David's son, who was king in Jerusalem, it is useless, useless said the philosopher, life is useless, all useless. Okay, that's a good opening to a book. Okay, and read on. God has laid a miserable fate upon us. I have seen everything done in this world, and I tell you, it is all useless. It is like chasing the wind. What's the meaning for us in these words? So I'm just going to give you, he goes through and he talks about what is useless. He starts out by uh, explaining that money, wealth accumulating things, is useless. Okay, so, well, here's a good point. And we'll try to put all this together. He said, I accomplished great things. I built myself houses, planted vineyards. I planted gardens and orchards and all kinds of fruit trees in them. I dug ponds to irrigate them. I bought many slaves, and there were slaves born in my household. I owned more livestock than anyone else who had ever lived in Jerusalem. I also piled up silver and gold from the royal treasuries of the lands I ruled. Men and women sang to entertain me, and I had all the women a man could want. Yes, I was great, greater than anyone else else who had ever lived in Jerusalem. And my wisdom never failed me. Anything I wanted, I got. I did not deny myself any pleasure. I was proud of everything I had worked for, and all this was my reward. And then I thought about all that I had done and how hard I had worked doing it, and I realized that it didn't mean a thing. It was like chasing the wind of no use at all. After all, a king can only do what previous kings have done. Okay, so he concluded uh, that that was uh, worthless, all of that chasing after things and money. If you love money, you will never be satisfied. If you long to be rich, you will never get all you want. It is useless. The richer you are, the more mouths you have to feed. All you gain is the knowledge that you are rich. I think there's some wisdom in this. I mean, this is uh, uh, wonderful to learn this when you're young than uh, to spend your whole life chasing after this. The problem is, as we'll read on, Solomon seemed to come to the conclusion that everything was useless. He said, a man might have a hundred children and live to be very old, but if he finds no satisfaction in life and doesn't even get a decent burial, it would have been better for him to be born dead. Is that true? And he would say this, everything has already been decided. It was known long ago what each person would be, so there's no use arguing with God about your destiny. Okay, And of course, um, for many, this would be Right in line, everything's completely mapped out, fully decided. Um, well, should we make a? Is this a good argument, good key text for supporting that position? Moving forward to chapter seven. So don't be too good or too wise. Why kill yourself? But don't be too wicked or too foolish either. Why die before you have to? Now this is a challenging verse. Don't be too good. Don't be too wise. Well, don't be too bad either. Don't be too wicked. Kind of moderation. Kind of stick in the middle here. Well, some have argued maybe this means uh, kind of an arrogant um, wisdom or knowledge. But anyway, we've got many, many verses like this that we kind of struggle to understand. What's he talking about here? Don't be too good or too wise. And of course, he did say chasing after many women. That is certainly useless. And he's very blunt on this. The truth is beyond us. It's far too deep. So I decided to learn everything I could and become wise enough to discover what life is all about. At the same time, I wanted to understand why it's stupid and senseless to be an evil fool. And here is what I discovered. A bad woman is worse than death. She is a trap, reaching out with body and soul to catch you. But if you obey God, you can escape. If you don't obey, you are done for. Yeah. Not fair here that the women don't, uh, one of these thousand women, we don't have a little book in there, maybe about uh, Solomon. But anyway, with all the wisdom, I have tried to find out how everything fits together, but so far I have not been able to. I do know there is one good man in a thousand, but never have I found a good woman. Isn't that terrible? <laughs> now, all scriptures inspired, so as, as a serious point here, I just want to know what, what uh, does this mean? Is this actually, uh, um, how would we take this? Are there more good men than women? I mean, how do we uh, understand inspiration in this context? Now, I don't believe that, okay? But, but I just want to at least struggle with the challenge here. Well, then he went on to say this. I did learn one thing. We were completely honest when God created us, but now we have twisted minds. Okay, is it possible that part of what Solomon is writing here comes out of a mind that has been twisted Um, Well, we'll have to consider that. Is everything useless? See, that's the problem. He eventually seems to come to the point that it is all useless. Do you agree with this theology? I decided that God is testing us to show us that we are no better than animals. After all, the same fate awaits human beings and animals alike. One dies just like the other. They are the same kind of creature. A human being is no better off than an animal because life has no meaning for either. Hey, should we make a doctrine out of that verse? Uh, What does that mean? They're both going to the same place, the dust. They both came from it. They will both go back to it. How can anyone be sure that the human spirit goes upward while an animal's spirit goes down to the ground? Uh, You wouldn't quote that at a funeral, would you? Um, That's not very uplifting. So I realized then that the best thing we can do, now is this the best thing we can do, is enjoy what we've worked for, there is nothing else we can do. There is no way for us to know what will happen after we die. Okay, that's how he felt. Okay, and kind of in this context, and this is such a contrast from Proverbs, what we read last time, someone who is always thinking about happiness is a fool. A wise person thinks about death. Okay. Here's what we read in Proverbs. Being cheerful keeps you healthy. It is slow death to be gloomy all the time. This would seem to be kind of a mirror opposite. Okay. What do you think? Should we be uh, obsessed with death? <laughs> What's that? He's bipolar. He's bipolar. Well, um, it, it's a fair question, though. Is does this come out of a normal, healthy uh, thought process here? Ecclesiastes five eighteen. Here is what I have found out. Okay, because this sounds like a summary statement. The best thing we can do, and he repeats this so many times, the best thing we can do is eat and drink. And enjoy what we have worked for during the short life that God has given us. This is our fate. Would you put this on your door? That uh, this is, while you all went to medical school, um, this is the meaning of life. So I am convinced that we should enjoy ourselves. Because the only pleasure we have in life is eating and drinking and enjoying ourselves. We can at least do this as we labor during the life that God has given us in this world. Okay, uh, I guess just a couple more here and then I want to see if you have any thoughts because seriously, I need help with this. What, how are we going to fit this together? I thought long and hard about all this and saw that God controls the actions of wise and righteous people. Is that true? Even their love and their hate. What do you think about that? No one knows anything about what lies ahead. It makes no difference. The same fate comes to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the bad, to those who are religious and those who are not, to those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. A good person is no better off than a sinner. One who takes an oath is no better off than one who does not. Okay, there's some challenging th- theology here in Ecclesiastes. Okay, we come to the end of the book. God made everything, and you can no more understand what he does than you understand how new life begins in the womb of a pregnant woman. Now, we could list uh, 20 verses here that God wants to be known. Eternal life is to know God. Okay, But here, uh, we would kind of suggest we really can't know God. No matter how long you live, remember that you will be dead much longer. <laughs> there is nothing at all to look forward to. Okay. Maybe this is not a good Bible study to have as we head towards the the end of the year. But um, anyway, what does all this mean? Okay. So the last chapter here, Ecclesiastes twelve. The philosopher tried to find comforting words. He didn't seem to try too hard in this book. He tried to find comforting words, but the words he wrote were honest. Okay. Maybe that's helpful. And so here's how it concludes. After all this, there is only one thing to say: Have reverence for God, obey His commands because this is all that we were created for. God is going to judge everything we do, whether good or bad, even things done in secret. Okay, so um, maybe before I just ask here, we just and I, I try to put these words in the mouth of Jesus, and it just was very difficult for me to imagine, you know, Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount coming down, and his sermon is, here's what I found out. Best we can do is eat and drink, enjoy what we've worked for. Uh, just, just didn't seem to fit. So, if we're making doctrines of this, and maybe this is one, one point I, I would like to make here, is that how we read the Bible? Do we read the Bible to make a list of doctrines? That's how it's often read. These are called key texts. Would we want to make key texts from Ecclesiastes? God has laid a miserable fate on all of us. Everything is useless. A human being is no better off than an animal. Life has no meaning for either. Uh, you know, the, the things that we just read here. Uh, would we make a list of doctrines? Is that how we read the Bible? So, um, I haven't invited a lot of um, dialogue in these Bible studies just because we'd still probably be in Exodus if, um, uh, if we were trying to go through it that way. But uh, does anyone have any thoughts? What do you do with a book like this that um, would seem to challenge uh, perhaps uh, many things that we might believe are exactly the opposite? Do you have any suggestions? Yes? Yeah, good. I don't know if all of you heard that, but... Um, You know, the Bible, we've said like the Psalms, when we talked about all the angry Psalms and how some people hate their enemies and that these words, you know, uh, are are written to reach people who hate their enemies and perhaps to show them another way. So I think perhaps, yes, it would meet a certain people that perhaps could identify with Solomon who maybe need this book. Uh, Yes, there was another comment over there. Yeah, Uh, one of the most powerful moments that that I've experienced as a physician was, uh, I I used, I shouldn't maybe say, but at a a medical facility and a doctor who uh, uh, lost his license because of uh, abuse of narcotics and actually stealing narcotics from his nursing home patients. I mean, it was a horrible thing, uh, but came and spoke to a group of us, about 80 physicians. And just hearing his story and how it all fell apart made uh, just an incredible uh, impression. Um, and uh, it was interesting to see how kind of how it got started down that road. So yeah, I think there's a lot to be learned uh, just from the the experience of Solomon, and the story. But I just want to say when when I've heard so often people say things like, "Well, I just want to do what the Bible says." Uh, boy, that's really really difficult to do, uh, if we're reading the Bible as key texts that. Each and every word is an inspired, do it this way, do it this way. Uh, I think the Bible should be read as a story uh, rather than a book that is a collection of doctrines. And kind of on this point, a book I'd really recommend, it's called The Blue Parakeet by Scott McKnight. And the the parakeet here is kind of a metaphor, this blue bird that comes in like these verses that uh, we think we've got it all figured out. And these verses come to us from scripture that we just can't fit into our paradigm. And uh, he tries to make sense of this, but one of the big points he makes is read the Bible as an inspired story. And we put the whole story together as important. I'll just read a few quotes here from his book talking about Jonah. He said, Missing the difference between God and the Bible is a bit like the person who reads Jonah and spends hours and hours figuring out if a human can live inside a whale and what kind of whale it was, but never encounters God. The book is about Jonah's God, not Jonah's whale. The ultimate goal of the Bible is to know God. I think if we see the Bible as a book that ultimately is to introduce us to Jesus Christ and we see God in the Bible meeting people where they are, including Solomon, okay, but eventually it climaxes in Jesus. If we're reading it as a story uh, rather than a bunch of doctrines, uh, I think it comes alive. He said, We are summoned. By the God who speaks to us in the Bible, to listen to God speak, to live out what God directs us to live out, and to discern how to live out the story in our own day. Turn the two-dimensional words on paper into a three-dimensional encounter with God. And I think the Bible really only comes alive uh, when it is read as uh, ultimately being uh, God's story. Okay? We've got to fit Ecclesiastes in with everything else. So let me just give you a couple examples here. Um, we might really appreciate this verse in Leviticus 19. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, Jesus quoted this. Okay, So we'll take that one. We, we like that verse. Okay, But we just read on here a few verses. Do not trim off the hair on your temples or trim your beards. Okay, Why don't we keep that one? Um, again, if we're reading the Bible as, okay, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. Um, well, we come to lots of things that that we can't do, or at least we're not doing. Yes. Now, of course, the problem is we're, we tend to assume, well, these problem texts are only uh, Old Testament. And, of course, we read to Paul, uh, who said it's a shameful thing for a woman to speak in church. So what do we do with that? Again, are we reading these to collect doctrines? Now, I don't uh, want to shock you here, but um, the, the most dramatic approach here that people take um, to this is to pull out uh, verses that agree with her theology, okay, and very, very selective, and um, two, you know, you've seen, I think it's the Westboro uh, Baptist Church that goes around with these signs. There are five, six at the most verses in the Bible that have anything to do with um, uh, homosexuality. It's um, quite, quite small as a whole, but yet... Uh, I wish I could find the one. I had another picture of an overweight individual holding this sign with a verse from Leviticus, and if you just read on a few chapters, the gluttonous child is to be stoned to death in Leviticus. So if we're going to use that one, well, let's go all the way, and uh, let's uh, take the whole chapter there. So this selective pulling out of verses is um, very, very damaging, okay, and just uh, some people have countered this, which I thought was kind of uh, clever here. This individual said, Leviticus also said, no haircuts, but I guess we're skipping that one. We'll, we'll take the one, but not the other. And this individual wrote, God hates figs after <laughs> Jesus cursed the fig tree. Okay? Anyway, so are we reading the Bible to collect doctrines? And uh, now here's, a, here's something that I would actually agree with, that, um, and probably many of you uh, here, because of this institution would as well, that... The living know where they're going to die, but the dead know nothing. And one way of reading the Bible is we're just looking for what we're looking for. We're looking to confirm what we believe to be true. Oh, here's a verse that agrees with our state of the dead. Great. I love Ecclesiastes. I'm going to put that one in. That one fits well. It's a key text collecting. But I think um, this is not a good place to prove uh, the, the state of the dead, or else we're going to have to take in everything else that Solomon had to say in Ecclesiastes about the state of the dead. Um, or some have used this, a time for killing, a time for hatred. Um, there it is in the Bible. You know, and we, can, we can pluck that verse again out of context and uh, maybe excuse uh, certain things. So uh, I want to list one other book here that is very good on this by Richard B. Hayes, who came out here to Loma Linda a year ago. Uh, very excellent conference. And uh, a book he wrote was The Art of Reading Scripture. And he listed four or five ways not to read the Bible. Okay, one was as uh, an advice column, like a dear Abbey. Uh, another was a map on how to get to heaven after we die. Uh, the Bible predominantly has to do with how we live in the here and now. How do we treat people? Um, and it's often just read as, well, I just want to get enough things together here uh, so that I can make it to heaven. The Bible certainly does have to deal with that. Okay, But that's... Um, it's how we live here and now that determines uh, the future, of course. Or as uh, the Bible should not be read as a predictive text that tells us what will happen at the end of, the time, end of time. And of course, many become uh, obsessed with this and trying to interpret different things in prophecy about the next president or Iran is going to bomb someone and, and so on. Uh, that's not uh, the purpose. Uh, and I wish we uh, had time to talk more about Revelation. But I think uh, the Left Behind series and all of that is, is really... Um, not in a good direction of uh, interpreting uh, prophecy. The Bible should not be read as a source of information about antiquity. In other words, merely just as a history book okay, that tells us some interesting facts. Or, and the people that hold up signs read it this way, as a Rorschach blot on which oppressors impose their views in order to justify their unfair power. We can really find whatever we want in Bible. We can in the Bible. We can justify anything. Okay, and uh, the Bible should not be read that way. How should we read the Bible? Number one, and this is what he tells us theology students, write it on a post-it note, stick it on the mirror, leave it there for all four years. The Bible is a story that is primarily about God. Now, in the Old Testament, we may not be too sure about God. Okay, we may have a number of questions. Okay, do we find God to be trustworthy, reliable, constant, loving, Okay, I think we're really only convinced, perhaps, as the story comes to Jesus. Okay, but then we take Jesus and we read the Old Testament again with that in mind. Um, and I really like this one, too. The Bible should be read as a coherent narrative from Genesis to Revelation, requiring each portion of it to be read in light of the whole. Okay, so every book we have to fit in the context of the other 65 books. And um, I'll I'll skip over maybe some of these others, even though they're very good. But this last one here, a willingness to be surprised, challenged, and transformed. In other words, that we're not reading the Bible, just looking for things that fit our theology. I just want to confirm what I already believe to be true. We're looking to be challenged. In fact, I would say spend more time with uh, verses that perhaps seem to rub against your theology. Okay, Work on those. Memorize those. Can you fit them in? Maybe you need to change a little bit about uh, uh, what the underlying belief structure might be. So I think um, I'd like to suggest here that Solomon hear this verse. A poor youngster with some wisdom, perhaps that reflected Solomon in his younger years, is better off than an old but foolish king who doesn't know which end is up. I think a lot of Ecclesiastes reflects um, you know what, the, if you're doing the kinds of things that Solomon was doing, uh, that has to have an effect. That warps your character. It reflects your, affects your thoughts and beliefs. And that the philosopher tried to find comforting words, but the words he wrote were honest. And I think uh, what's amazing here is after everything that Solomon did, God basically just said to him, hey, write it down. Write your story. Uh, what, as you reflect back on your life, uh, write it down. It's for our benefit Okay, not to follow Solomon's example, but to, to uh, uh, really go the opposite. If we could follow an example here. Here's a healthy lung. Here is lung cancer. I think Ecclesiastes reflects um, some things that happened to Solomon because of poor choices in his life. And we really should read it and say that's not the direction I want to go. It's a very valuable lesson. Okay, uh, We want to follow the healthy, obviously. So if I could uh, just summarize here uh, that... I think at one time in his life, Solomon lived according to the principles of God's kingdom. And for a time, he was a bright light to the world. Okay, at another time, Solomon accepted the principles of another kingdom. Selfishness, power, greed. And this led him to become a foolish king. And we see that reflected in his writing. So I would just say, if we base our life on the principles of God's kingdom and on true wisdom, we will become successful, but as God determines success. So that may be like Paul, who was you know, imprisoned, but successful from a kingdom of God perspective. If we base our life on the principles of any other kingdom, we become foolish, and that may be a rich millionaire, but foolish from God's perspective. So God's way leads to healing, restoration, happiness, peace, joy, wisdom. Uh, basically, it works that way. By beholding, we become changed. It's a natural Process. It really does work that way. Any other way leads to self-destruction. God didn't do something to Solomon. He didn't impose something on Solomon. When Solomon began uh, going after foreign women and worshiping foreign gods, okay, it was a natural process uh, that led to his destruction. And if I could here in the last uh, two minutes, uh, I thought this was such a good... Um, and this little video clip here on, that I thought applied to what we're saying about reading the Bible as a story. This was done by the New England uh, or New Zealand uh, Book Council. They're trying to encourage people to read books. The books come alive. And so they made this little uh, cartoon here. And I think uh, if we read the Bible as a story with Jesus and the cross at the center, it comes alive. See what you think.